0: Let's open up in our Bibles together now to Ephesians chapter 1. Continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. If you're quick, you might want to stick a finger in Luke 18 too. We'll look at that shortly. And if you're just like nasty Bible quick, put a finger in Daniel chapter 10. Ephesians 1 for the beginners. Ephesians 1 and Luke 18 for the intermediate class. And for advanced Bible thumpers and page turners, Ephesians 1, Luke 10, and Daniel 10. Luke 18, Daniel 10, excuse me. Um, In light of our sermon a couple weeks ago, I just wanted to ask you how it went today preparing yourself for church. How'd that go? Did you spend more time preparing your hair or your heart today? That's, That's the new question that we're asking ourselves, right? Clearly, I spent more time on my heart than I did on my hair. Not having the best hair day today, but remember we talked about preparing ourselves before we come to church. Praying, have you been praying and preparing? Um, are you are you cognizant of the fact that as we gather as a church today, what we're doing is fulfilling God's ancient desire to be with His people? And that we gather to, for, and around Jesus. That's what we're doing, right? Just a little reminder. And then in light of last week's message, I just want to ask us how it went with last week's assignment. Remember last week's assignment? Last week's assignment was to tangibly love, commend, rejoice over, and pray for a Christian brother or sister. Remember that? How'd that go? Did it go well? Smart people were doing it before they even left the building. I saw a bunch of you were like, oh, you're awesome. Ah. I was like, good job. You got your homework done. But I was mindful of that myself this week. Um, I was hanging out with some other church planners and working on church stuff in the future. And I caught myself a few times starting to talk trash about other churches and leaders and movements. And then I remembered my own sermon. And I said, I ought not to do that. And instead I endeavored to speak blessings over them and to rejoice over them and commend them for God's gracious work in them. So let's work on that, okay? The title of uh, today's sermon is Prayer and Epinosis. Prayer and Epinosis. We spend so much of our lives doing things that don't actually matter, don't we? But what does matter? More than anything else, what really matters? And what the heck is Epinosis? These are the questions we'll answer in today's sermon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've saved us by the work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you now, God, that you are the source and center of all of our joy. Thank you that you've called us to gather to for and around you. Thank you that you're actually, literally present in our midst. Thank you that all over these cities right now, wherever. Churches are gathering, there you are. And Lord, we would pray together as reality blessings over all the churches that are serving you today in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, and Ventura, the surrounding and included areas. We ask that you bless your churches today for your glory, God. And we ask that as we're gathered here, we'd have a real sense of your presence, that that truth wouldn't be lost on us. You'd give us faith to believe it and eyes to see it. And that you would help us today, Holy Spirit, to enjoy Jesus. Teach us to enjoy him in our preaching and in our hearing and our worshiping and in our praying and our loving each other. We want to enjoy Christ today. And please, Lord, anoint me for your glory to communicate your truth. If you were to leave me alone in this pulpit, it would be disappointing and ugly. But we all together count on your spirit to anoint a foolish man for your glory. that People would leave here talking about Jesus. Please do that, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week as we looked at our text, which was basically verse 15 and sort of into verse 16, we spoke about the fact that Paul was commending the church in Ephesus and rejoicing over the church in Ephesus for two things, their strong faith in the Lord and their love for God's people everywhere. And we talked about the fact, and we already alluded to it in our preparatory statements, that we as a part of the body of Christ, and, and we as, as a local expression known as reality, we want to be those who would be known for our strong faith in the Lord Jesus and for our love for God's people everywhere, right? That we, we want to love the whole body of Christ. We don't want to just be local church people. We definitely don't want to be reality people. We want to be kingdom of God people, right? We want to be fruitful members of the body, loving Christians everywhere. We want that to be our stance toward others and we wanna be known for our strong faith in Jesus Christ. We're not perfect in those things, but we, like the church in Ephesus, are growing in those things. And Paul knew the church in Ephesus wasn't perfect in either of those, their strong faith in the Lord or their love for the saints everywhere. He knew that there was plenty of room for growth, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to interact with this church graciously and he chose to encourage them in the ways that he saw the evidence of God's grace working in their lives. That that was our homework this week. To to see the positive, to see God's grace in somebody's life, right? Where where God is working in their lives and to commend that and rejoice over that. And that's what Paul's doing. They're not perfect, a lot to learn, room for growth, but he's commending and rejoicing. He's spiritually supporting them Through doing that, that was the title of our sermon last week, How to Spiritually Support One Another. Commendation and rejoicing over each other are the ways that we talked about. But Paul, having planted this church in Ephesus, loved this church in Ephesus. And he loved them way too much to merely commend them, to simply rejoice over them. He loved them so much that he would pray for them. And that's the ultimate form of spiritual support. If we want to talk about how to spiritually support one another, and we all need spiritual support, right? We all want to be spiritually supported. We we all want to help support others. The best way that we can do that, bar none, is by praying for one another. The best way that we can spiritually support each other is by praying for each other. We believe to be prayer so powerful and so potent, so redemptive, so world-changing, because that's who our God is, right? That at the end of every service during the second set of worship, we have a prayer team up here, right? There's a prayer team, a whole bunch of men and women. There's not any other kind of team up here, right? It's not a football team. There's not like a, a glee team. There's not a mime team, God forbid. There's, there's none of that. There is a prayer team, right? It's the only team that's up here. There's a prayer team because we believe that prayer changes things, people, circumstances, situations, not because prayer in and of itself is powerful, but because it is a direct link and an appeal to a God who is all powerful and who cares about our lives immensely so wanting to spiritually support ourselves and each other as a church, there's a prayer team available all the time. Prayer is the best way that we can spiritually support each other. But what is the best way that we could pray for each other? And what will seem to glean from the text this morning is that the best way that we could pray for each other is more of God in one another's lives. The best way that we could pray for each other is that we would have more of God in our lives. Pick it up in verse 16, Ephesians 1. Paul says, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Okay, and here's how he prays for them. And over the next couple weeks, we'll see some other ways that he prays for them, but here's what it says in verse 17, our verse for today. Asking God the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. He asked God to give them spiritual wisdom and insight so that they might grow in their knowledge of God. Now let's talk a little bit about the details. First of all, he says, I pray for you constantly, which just means he prayed for them regularly and consistently, right? He wasn't walking around always praying for the church in Ephesus. There were other churches and other things he prayed for. But it is important to hear this, that he prayed for them in seeking to spiritually support them and expressing love for them regularly and consistently. This seems to be how prayer is portrayed in Scripture. Prayer should be regular and consistent. Not the vain repetition that Jesus spoke against in the Gospels of the pagans. That's not at all what we're talking about. But we do see in Scripture that prayer should be regular and consistent. As an expression of earnest reliance. I like the old Bible word for it. It's importunity. That's an old Bible word. Importunity. I think it's in the King James or something like that that I've never read. Importunity. It means to persist with insistence. What is importunity? Praying with importunity? Praying with persistent insistence is what that means. This seems to be the kind of thing that Jesus was speaking about in Matthew chapter 7 when he gave us a little bit on prayer where he said, keep on asking and you will receive what you are asking for. Keep on seeking and you will find Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Notice persistence. Keep on. It's in the verbal form there in the Greek. Keep on doing this. And notice insistence. Start by asking. If it doesn't happen, then move on to seeking. If it's not happening, then start knocking on the door. Jesus seems to say that our prayers should be importune. We should pray with importunity, persistent insistence. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it says, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. That They should always pray and never give up. And then he goes on to give them a parable of contrast. For those of you that had your finger in uh, Luke 18, I'll just read it. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up importunity. And he said this, there was a judge in a certain city who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, persistence, saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy, insistence. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. What an awesome guy, huh? (laughs) I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man comes, when he returns, will he find faith on earth? So it's a parable of contrast. It's not that God is like the unjust judge, but it's that prayer is just like that, right? God's not like the unjust judge. God is in contrast. It's a parable of contrast. But prayer is always like that. Prayer requires persistent insistence, importunity. Now, why is that? There are a couple reasons why we need to pray repeatedly, regularly, and consistently. The first one is because prayer is spiritual warfare. When you enter into prayer, you are engaging the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, there is always a battle unfolding. And a battle, by the very definition of the word, requires persistence. An ongoing struggle. Otherwise, it's not called a battle. Right? There's a spiritual battle going on in the spiritual realm. When we pray, we engage the spiritual realm, which is in battle. Therefore, we must persist in prayer. That is the very nature of battle. Allow me to illustrate this from Daniel chapter 10 for those of you that had your finger there. For the rest of you, I'll just read it. Here's what's going on in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel, of course, uh, with others is exiled, right? In Babylon. And he's praying about the future of Israel and their well-being. And he's been praying for 21 days. Okay, 21 days he's been praying persistently. And then this angel appears to him. Right? And then in verse 12 of Daniel 10, the angel says, don't be afraid, Daniel. Listen, since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before God, your request has been heard in heaven. So immediately when Daniel started to pray, God heard. That, that's important to know. Soon as Daniel began to pray, God heard. Because we often wonder, is God even hearing my prayers? The angel comes and says, soon as you started to pray, God heard. Well, then why do you have to pray for 21 days? Follow along. He says, I have come in answer to your prayer. God did something about the prayer. Daniel was praying. God heard. God responded. Isn't that good to know? Okay, verse 13. But, this is a big but, but. For, why would you laugh at that? (laughs) For 21 days. Listen to what the angel says. But for 21 days. The spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. The spirit prince. An evil spirit, a demonic spirit, that was ruling over the area of Persia in the spiritual realm, blocked this messenger angel, perhaps Gabriel, from from answering God's prayer, from being the response that Daniel was looking for. Trip out. Like, Daniel prayed, God heard on the first day, sent an angel to response, but then there was a demon who also responded. The spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. <clears throat> then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me. There's a battle. He called him back up. The messenger angel's like, it's getting hot in here, broken arrow, and Michael comes. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to me and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. So Gabriel's like, okay, I got to go answer this prayer. I got to go deliver the message. Michael, you stay up here and open a can on this demon. That's that's, that's literally what was happening. It's literally what was happening. Verse 14, then he says, Now I'm here to explain what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And then it was answered and it changed the whole course of history and the whole course of Israel and everything. It was a huge thing he was praying for. When he prayed, Daniel, he entered into the spiritual realm. A battle unfolded. There was opposition. If you don't think there's demonic opposition, you're naive, my brother. You're foolish, my sister. We have an enemy. The Bible is explicit. We have an enemy. Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour He has minions and forces. There is a spiritual realm unfolding, a spiritual battle, excuse me, unfolding in the spiritual realm. So what if Daniel hadn't been persistent in prayer? What if Daniel had given up after the first day? He prayed for three weeks and finally the answer came. What if he had given up after the first week? What if he'd given up after the second week? What if he gave up after 20 days? Somehow our prayers are connected to the victory in the spiritual battle. So when we're praying for our spouses, when we're praying for our children, when we're praying for our schools, when we're praying for our churches, when we're praying for our cities, when we're praying for culture, when we're praying for our nation, should we not persist? Seems to be the clear message of Scripture. Paul will go on in the book of Ephesians to say, stay alert and persist in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Ephesians 6.10 in the context of spiritual battle. So why does Paul say, I pray constantly? Why should we pray regularly and consistently? Because there is a spiritual battle. Secondly, because of spiritual reliance. Praying repeatedly keeps us or expresses that we are or causes us to become dependent upon God. We pray regularly and consistently for spiritual reliance. Jesus taught us this when he taught us to pray and said, you ought to pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. He didn't say, pray this way. Give us this month enough bread to last us for several months. Now we as people think that way and that's okay. We should say blah, blah, blah. It's not how he taught us to pray. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, was taught, teaching us that prayer is reliance upon God. So pray this way. Give me sustenance. Sustain me, God, Today. Give me what I need for life today and I'll seek you again tomorrow. Because what God wants is relationship. He wants a relationship of children to a father, lover to a lover, spiritual reliance upon him. God wants us to position ourselves in such a way that we are relying upon him and his provision to sustain our lives. Now, there are two ways to live. And every one of us in this room is living by one of these two ways. The approach of self-sustenance or the approach of God-sustenance. Every one of us is living one of those two ways. One is finite. And it's a limited resource that is subject to change, influence, failure, and depletion. That's self. The other is infinite. And is an unlimited resource, which is immutable. That means unchangeable, immovable, unfailing, and exhaustible, inexhaustible. Every one of us is living according to one of those two forms of sustenance, self or God. And we choose. You choose the way that you will live. It's determined largely by your view of God. Whether you truly view God as being infinitely and intimately concerned about your life as Scripture portrays him to be, or you merely think he's some far-off removed deity that doesn't care that much as some would pretend him to be. You choose how you live. And and allow me to say in all humility, what you have chosen is evidenced by your prayer life. That's how you know what you've chosen. If you've chosen the road of self-sustenance, then you will have infrequent, meager sort of prayers. If you've chosen God's sustenance, then earnest and frequent, importune prayer will be the tone and the tenor of your life. You have chosen one of those two roads. Which one is it? There's always time to change the road you're on. God's sustenance is infinite, unlimited, immutable, immovable, unfailing, and inexhaustible. Now having said that, because we as humanity are innately aware of our frail finiteness, almost no one lives a life totally void of prayer. Did you realize that? Prayer is like love and music. It's common to all of humanity. Almost nobody lives a life totally void of prayer, evidenced by the existence of foxhole prayers, right? That in in life's toughest moments in the in in the pinches and the obstacles that seem insurmountable there's only almost nobody that won't pray at that time they may not know to whom they were praying they may not know what they ought to pray but in the foxhole there's nobody that doesn't pray i once heard a story of a ship that was sinking out at sea and a woman came to the captain somehow made it to the the helm there and came to the captain and said, captain, you, you, you gotta give it to me straight. What's the situation here? What does it look like for us? And he said, ma'am, all we can do at this point is pray. And she said, I didn't know it was that bad. The point being, our view of prayer is usually as a last resort, right? Yeah. I didn't know it was that bad. You mean we gotta pray? There's nothing else we can do. There's got to be something else we can do. You're telling me that all we can do is pray. That's a common experience of humanity on their deathbeds. There comes a point where all, all they can do is pray. None of their connections, none of their money, none of their possessions. None of the other things that they ever hoped it can do them any good at that moment. The tragedies that confront our world prove that humanity prays. What do we say when something happens like Haiti, right? Everyone is saying our prayers are with those in Haiti, right? Even secular culture, this, this becomes a mantra. Our prayers are with those in Haiti. But there is a counter movement going on in culture, in case you haven't noticed. What is becoming increasingly popular is to say our thoughts are with those in Haiti, It's a cultural counter movement to the human intuitiveness of prayer in response to our finite frailties. But you see, nobody in a foxhole, nobody on a sinking ship, hopes for miraculous delivery through the thoughts of another. They appeal to someone greater when we are on our deathbeds, when our children are diagnosed with cancer again and given a 30% chance to live. We don't need people to send us their thoughts. We need people to pray. You realize that 77% of Americans believe that prayer can help someone who is ill or injured? 70% of Americans... You see, when we are faced with our frailty, we intuitively appeal to deity. So, humanity does when faced with our frailty. But, But that is part of the error. We generally appeal to God when everything is falling apart. I'm here to suggest, because of the text, another way. What if we started earlier? And we appealed to God to be our everything, not our last hope, not our only hope in the time of trouble, but our everything in the whole of life. What if we approach prayer that way? That is exactly how Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus exactly how I was praying for them. What is the best way that we can pray for someone? The best sort of prayer is not merely an appeal to God for help, but rather an appeal to God for Him. The best way to pray is not to pray for God to help, but to pray that we would have Him. That is precisely how Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. Help from one who is infinite, unlimited, immutable, immovable, and unfailing, and inexhaustible is one thing. But to actually gain more of the one who himself is infinite, unlimited, immutable, immovable, and failing, to actually experience him is another thing altogether. Far beyond help from, to actually experience him is what's going on here. This is exactly how Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. We saw how he prayed for them regularly and consistently with importunity but what he prays is fantastic he was asking God the glorious father literally the father of glory of our Lord Jesus Christ to give them spiritual wisdom and insight so they might grow in their knowledge of God notice the end goal that they might grow in their knowledge of God Spiritual wisdom and insight for doing that. It's ambiguous in the Greek and it will read differently according to your English translations, whichever one you have, but it may read spiritual wisdom and insight or it may read a spirit of wisdom and insight. But the end goal is the same, okay? And if God by his spirit is giving you spiritual wisdom and insight, then by definition you kind of have a spirit of wisdom and insight. So it's superfluous though meaningful. Either way, the end goal is the same. For spiritual wisdom and insight, when we studied verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 1, we talked about them extensively, so I won't do it now. You can refer to that sermon online. But they are basically synonyms in the Bible, right? Two words to just say the same thing. Like when we say, oh, it's nice and warm out today, we don't mean it's nice. And then separately, it's also warm. We're just saying it's nice and warm a way of saying the same thing. Generally, that's how the Bible uses the terms wisdom and insight or wisdom and understanding. And it uses these terms to talk about our understanding of the true nature of things and the correct approach to life. Paul's praying that they would understand the true nature of existence and the right approach to life. He wants them to have that, that they might grow in their knowledge of God. Grow in their knowledge of God. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he simply wants them to know more about God. More knowledge is not what he's after. That doesn't do enough. It's not our knowledge about Jesus that saves us. It's Jesus who saves us, right? He's not just saying that he wants them to know more about God. You see, what we need, what the church in Ephesus needed, what our church needs, what the church in America needs, is not more knowledge about God. We actually need more of God. We may know more about God than any other generation in any other nation that's ever been, perhaps. We don't need to know more about God. We need more of God. That's what he's praying for them. The word being translated knowledge here is not the usual Greek word for knowledge, which is gnosis. You've probably heard that before, okay? it's praying for them to grow in their knowledge of God. He's not using the word gnosis. There is a preposition attached to that word here that changes everything, okay? There's a prefix on it. The word that he uses is epinosis. What in the heck is epinosis? That's what I'm talking about, epinosis. Okay, it doesn't mean mere knowledge. Epinosis is more intense than knowledge. He's praying for them to have something about God that's more intense than just knowledge. Epinosis means a deep, full, thorough knowledge. Epinosis is clear and exact understanding. Epinosis expresses a thorough participation on the part of the subject, us in this case, the church in Ephesus, In the object, God. Epinosis is a thorough participation in the object. It's roll up your sleeves experiential knowledge. It's not head knowledge. It's not a set of precepts. It's roll up your sleeves, actually dive into it, experiential, clear, exact, deep, real understanding. That's what he's praying for. It's participatory. It's not removed. It's not aloof. It's not theoretical. It's relational, experiential, participatory. That is what is needed. We need to experience God, not just know about God. It's not knowledge about God that saves us. It's God who saves us. Now our experience of God needs to be shaped, informed, dictated, and constrained by Scripture. Yes. Amen. But we need a full pursuit of God. That's what he's praying for them. Epinosis. Full, clear, exact, experiential, participatory knowledge of God. More of God. This is what matters in life. This is the only thing that matters in life. That's what Peter would say, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Did you know that, Christian? God has given you everything you need for living a godly life. Well, how do I tap into that? <laughs> we have received, past tense, all of this by coming to know, same Greek word, epinosis. We have received all this through clear, exact, experiential, roll-up-your-sleeve, participatory, dive into him. We have received all that we need for life and godliness by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. There is a Old Testament heritage behind the word epinosis. So it's a Greek word, it's a New Testament word. There's a there's thing that's sitting in the back of Paul's mind. And it's the idea of the Hebrew word yaha, Yara is one of the Hebrew words meaning to know. But it's the same sort of epinosis concept here. It means to know deeply, experientially, relationally, intimately. That's the Old Testament backdrop to what Paul is saying here to the church in Ephesus. It comes out in Jewish thinking in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 where it says, And Adam knew Eve. talking about sex. (laughs) Are there any kids in here? Plug their ears. It's talking about sex. And Adam knew Eve. Yada in the Hebrew. If you ever read the book of Jeremiah, God was so mad at the southern kingdom. He was so upset with them. He actually says to Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. Have you read that part in Jeremiah? He says to the prophet, stop praying for these people. I'm done with them. Like, God's really mad in the book of Jeremiah. What was he mad about? Lots of things. But one of his primary complaints that he says to Jeremiah about the southern kingdom of Judah is that my people do not know me. Same Hebrew word. Adam knew Eve. God was so upset that his people did not know him in this deep, intimate, experiential way Israel was after all the, the wife of God we are after all the bride of Christ this is the only thing that matters it's the only thing that matters on the last day Jesus says this about it. Matthew 7. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. But Lord, we did ministry. And we helped people and we did good stuff and we dealt with demons and even miracles and we prophesied. We all did it in your name. I, I never knew you. Knowing God, actually knowing God through Christ is the issue of life, not just knowing about God. Jesus made it explicit. Concerning eternal life in John 17, he said, and this is a way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one who sent, he sent to earth. This is eternal life, to know God. Knowing about God's not gonna do you anything. You need to come to know God, First Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners. Why? To bring you safely home to God. You see, that, that's what we were made for. We are made to know God. God made us for relationship with him. It's why he spoke us into existence. We were made to know God and enjoy him forever. And so what really matters in life is knowing God. Haven't you discovered that because we were made for him, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him? I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said this. This is a great quote. Trying to be happy without a sense of God's presence is like trying to have a bright day without the sun. Trying to be happy without a sense of God's presence is like trying to have a bright day without the sun. You were made for God. You are meant from God. The problem of separation has come with the problem of our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. And so, because before the foundations of the world, God loved you and chose you, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you, to pay the price for your sins and to rise from the dead and conquer sin, death, and the devil, that you might have eternal life with God. This is what God has for humanity. This is what he has done in Christ Jesus. And Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus that they would experience this in the fullness, that they wouldn't just go to church. They wouldn't just have religion. They wouldn't just be able to recite verses or repeat doctrine, but that they would truly and really know God. Paul is passionate about this. Paul said to the church in Philippi, Speaking about everything else in his life, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Everything else. Because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing, knowing. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, right? I don't come to know God through my performance or my good deeds or my good work. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends upon faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. What really matters in life? And what in the heck is epinosis? It's everything that matters. It goes beyond knowing about God and truly knowing God through Jesus Christ. Listen, we will all do many things this week that don't mean anything, won't we? Some of us will spend most of our week engaged in things that just will never mean anything. Do this one thing this week. Pursue epinosis of God. Clear, exact, experiential, participatory. Dive into knowledge of God. And then do this. Pray for someone else to have spiritual wisdom and insight to epinosis God. And then do this. Pray that blessing for one other church in our community. Thank you, Lord, for your grace upon us. Thank you, Jesus, that you made a way for us to know God in this way. Thank you that our lives now have meaning and purpose, that we can know God and enjoy him forever. Holy Spirit of God, teach us to enjoy this relationship. Teach us to experience it, to lay hold of it. Save us from religion, save us from routine. Save us from falsehood. And cause us to recognize the depth of our sin that we could look clearly to the cross of Jesus Christ where it was all dealt with and put all of our hope and faith in him to save us from our sins and bring us safely home to God. And then give us the grace to dive into that fully and enjoy that forever. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen.